and welcome to the Alt Book Club podcast, the online spin-off from the Literary Comedy Night. I am your host, Shirley Hulse, and today we are joined by Be Her Lead co-founder and my best friend, Edith Johnson. Hi, Edith. How are you? Hey, best friend. I'm good. <laughs> Lockdown considering. Mm. Yeah, how are you? How's the bump? The bump is okay but heavy and I'm looking forward to it not being a bump in fact by the time this podcast comes out I may have an actual baby (laughs) that's quite scary oh my god that's such an exciting thought so I mentioned that you are a Be Her Lead co-founder do you want to explain a bit about a Be Her Lead because it is really cool yeah sure so Be Her Lead is a non-profit social enterprise and I started it when I was still a teacher and basically in a nutshell we train teachers to run workshops for underconfident girls um, or girls who have low well-being and we also act as a bit of a network for feminist teachers so we do like a weekly virtual coffee series and we've got a conference coming up which is a space for teachers to come together and talk about issues like gender inequality and other intersecting issues in their schools. Yeah which is amazing I'm not exactly a teacher but I've been to a couple of virtual coffees and they're just everyone's really supportive and super switched on and they know loads of stuff it's an incredible network that you're you're building well you're also a really important part of it so Shirley's done stand-up comedy workshops for groups of the teenage girls and also one pilot primary group as well that was so cute where she did this like virtual workshop for these 10 year olds (laughs) um and then also with the other group 14 year olds it was so interesting watching the difference actually between the way that the 10-year-olds and the 14-year-olds responded to the comedy workshop. Mm. They actually, both groups got really into it, but like... Got super into it. Something about the enthusiasm of 10-year-olds that is just so loud. <laughs> and the self-consciousness of the 14-year-olds, right? Mm. Like they definitely took a lot longer to warm up. Absolutely. Anyway, what are you here to talk about today? Well, about that. So. I actually feel a bit, I feel a bit underprepared and foolish coming on this podcast because I'm going to try and talk about a book that I haven't read since I was like 13 years old. So sorry about that, Shelley. Maybe I can have special excuse for that as your best friend. (laughs) But I also thought maybe it would be interesting to talk about why I couldn't bring myself to reread it for this podcast, excusing my laziness. So yeah, like here goes. Um, The book is Homecoming by Cynthia Voigt. Have you heard of it? Um, I've only heard of it because you told me in advance that you were going to do it, but I hadn't heard of it before then. Right. So it's a book about four kids, four siblings, whose mum abandons them without any warning. And the eldest, uh, who's a girl called Dicey, she has to look after her younger siblings as they trek across, um, I think it's Connecticut, to the home of a distant relative that they've never met. And they're all the time trying to run away from social services and other adults who are trying to get them as they see Mm. it. So I chose this book because I wanted to talk about books that I read as a teenage girl. I work with teenage girls and teachers who are working with teenage girls. So I reflect a lot back on that time. And this was one that I really remember having quite a forceful effect on me especially Dicey, the main character. She's a really interesting fusion of, I feel, like the two template heroines that I encountered in kids and young adult fiction. So 
there's the adventurous tomboy side of her and there's also the responsible goody two-shoes side of her and she kind of needs both of those attributes because she's acting all the time as a substitute mum for her younger siblings but at the same time she's having to run from the law. Yeah and I also picked it because it's relatively unknown for Brits anyway it's it's actually quite famous in the states and I wanted to seem a bit edgy but niche thought that would be good for the podcast (laughs) yeah so I picked this book and then I told my boyfriend the idea and he immediately ordered it he has Amazon Prime next morning there it was on the kitchen table looking at me really expectantly expecting me to open it but I did not open it it remained on the kitchen table one of my flatmates moved it eventually to the hall still didn't (laughs) open it Um, and then I left it another couple of days and then I did open it but immediately closed it again and then I started to reflect on why I found it so difficult to reopen this book Mm. and it made me reflect on the fact that that's actually not something that I ever do I never reread books even the books that I really love I guess sometimes I do if I'm trying to find a particular passage to show a friend, usually you, or if it's something that I'm teaching on because I still tutor even though I'm not a teacher anymore. So yeah, it's not something I do much. And I think maybe this is because I feel quite anxious about how many books there are in the world. There are so many books. Mm. I looked it up. There are, according to Google algorithms, about 130 million books in the world. And that's just titles. There are millions upon millions upon millions more copies of that 130 million books. So there's so much to read, Shirley. And there's so little time to reread things. And I feel like, yeah, that's something which, even though it sounds ridiculous, is definitely something that stops me rereading books. And then I did a bit of like GCSE level psychoanalysis on myself. And I thought (laughs) back to my childhood and I was super privileged in that I grew up in a house surrounded by books it felt like most of those 130 million books were in cardboard boxes scattered around my home (laughs) Um, my mum was a children's book reviewer which is I guess a dream job for a parent to have and pretty much every day we'd have a new delivery of another parcel of proof copies so i never really went to the library and I never learned how to use and revere libraries in the way that I think you did. Uh, I recently signed up to my local library and I found that I had fines going back since I was like 18 years old. Oh my god. Don't worry it capped at like 25 pounds it was actually chill but it made me feel really bad like I don't revere library books or just books in general because in my house they were just kind of excess My dad's also really bookish and at the weekend that I'd trail after him as he went from secondhand bookshop to secondhand bookshop, it was like a kind of pilgrimage for him every weekend. He is really interested in German philosophy and every shop that we stopped at, he'd browse for a bit and then he'd really tentatively approach the shopkeeper behind the counter and ask, do you have any German books? and if they said yes then he would probably buy it 
Like he'd agonize for ages and worry about my mum being angry with him because he still hadn't put up enough shelves for all of the dusty old books in boxes on the landing. But he would invariably still end up buying the book and it would just be this never ending cycle. So this sense of there being too many books in the world has been with me for a long time. It's also been stifling for my writing, I think, as well as my reading. This sounds like just a list of excuses, but I feel like adding more words to the never ending literary soup that is in the world, in the universe, uh, it feels kind of silly and redundant and also kind of scary. I think I'm scared by excess in most forms. And this definitely started off when I was a teenager. So that was probably the time when I stopped pouring back over books that I loved and pouring back over old passages. And I started instead plowing my way through as many grown up books as possible. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of like talking to you about being a precocious teenager and wanting to read books that were difficult. And that was at the same time that I started restricting my eating. So I stopped indulging in snacks and desserts and I started to count calories and I feel like my switch from enjoying books to reading as many grown-up books as possible is maybe a bit similar this sounds like I'm trying to blame (laughs) this sounds like I'm trying to blame my dad's really adorable book addiction for my anorexia as a teenager and I'm absolutely not doing that I'm just maybe seeing that there's a correlation between those two behaviors in the sense that I needed to control chaos and excess Mm. yeah and it's also about wanting to seem as clever as possible I think by digesting as many books as I can as quickly as possible and I feel like loads of us share this I wonder if the listeners will relate to this especially at the moment in a pandemic because you're at home a lot and there's this kind of pressure to be reading that I feel Mm. anyway rather than rereading. My friend actually works for a company called Blinkist that makes audiobook summaries for really, really busy, important people who work in startups. And the idea is that it's a bit like Audible, but uh, instead of listening to the whole book, you listen to a 15 minute summary during your commute and they use the phrase blink a book. So like the Facebook ads for this company, Blinkist, call these people, the smartest people in the world, the smartest people in the world read as many books as possible. And I feel like the message there is that if you're serious about reading, then you barely have time to read books the first time, let alone the second or third. I know I still haven't talked probably about homecoming, but then this sent me down this tangent and I started thinking about learning about medieval times, medieval literature at uni. And Before the advent of printing, I feel like reading was seen and experienced in a very different way. So monks would meticulously copy out and illustrate old texts. They'd illuminate them. And in that process, they'd have to read and reread them really slowly. And Mm. that was seen as something that was necessary for getting to the real matter of the book. And they even compared this to the process of chewing and digesting food. So I found out that they would refer to venter animi. I think, I don't know if I pronounced the Latin correctly, but that apparently means the stomach of the mind. 
So your mind was like a stomach and rereading a book was a bit like your body needing to break down food in several different stages. And that's necessary in order to retrieve all of the nutritional value of the food. Mm. And they knew that if you rushed eating, you get a tummy ache and they're still reading the same way. So yeah, I thought that was interesting because that's a big shift in the way that reading is seen. But then I think all of that is maybe obfuscation because I think the most important reason why I don't reopen books and why I found it hard to reread Homecoming is because I don't want to replace the memory of reading the book for Mm. the first time with like an overlaid memory of rereading it. It's kind of apt given that the title of this book is Homecoming. It's like, I don't really want to go home But it's definitely like much more true of books that I read when I was growing up. I don't want to reread them because it almost um, dilutes the memory of reading them. And then the other side of the same coin is like not wanting to remember what it felt like being a prepubescent or pubescent child slash young adult having that experience of reading. Because I don't know about you, but I found puberty really traumatic and I read Homecoming when I was going through puberty and sometimes I just don't want to remember or relive that experience Mm. I think that's why I couldn't open homecoming but I did eventually force myself to open it and I managed to do it because I set myself a task of finding a particular passage that I had a really vivid memory of and that passage was a description of the kids eating really rich ice cream gorging it in a hot car park And I actually found that looking for this particular passage that I remembered was very difficult because nearly every single page of that novel contains a really detailed itemized description of food of some sort. So like the food that the kids buy, the food that they eat, the food that they're looking forward to eating. So it's stuff like cheap hot dogs, peanut butter sandwiches, and then occasionally they have some McDonald's and it's a big deal it's a treat while they're on the run and I think this is really realistic because the kids in the book are starving like every day Mm. is a battle to find food and sustain themselves as they're moving forward but I also feel like kids books often really dwell on food because kids get really hungry and I found that really interesting because my main memory like the most memorable passage from the book was about food and also at the time I was starting to restrict my eating so I thought about food a lot I spent a lot of my time as a teenager fantasizing about food basically so then I I found the passage about the ice cream and it wasn't set in a hot car park like I remembered the car park was actually where the kid's mum abandons them at the start of the novel so she disappears into a shopping mall she never comes back and they're left in a car park and it's really hot. So I'd kind of fused the ice cream passage with the car park passage. Can I read out a bit? Because it's a really, really good passage nonetheless, even if it's not in a car park. Yeah, sure. Cool. Okay, so I love this passage because it kind of brings together the luxury of eating with the need to eat to sustain oneself. So it's all about ice cream. James got a double dip chocolate cone, explaining that nuts and chocolate were both rich and filling. Dicey got a scoop of chocolate and a scoop of butter almond. She noticed a pile of maps of Annapolis on the countertop and took one. Maybeth wanted pink sherbet and green. 
but Dicey told her to get real ice cream because of the milk. She chose two scoops of strawberry. Sammy asked for strawberry ripple ice cream topped with peanut butter ice cream. Ugh, Dicey said, listening to his order. He grinned at her. They sat at a small table to eat. The ice cream tasted rich and smooth and cold. You could tell it was made from real cream. It was that rich. Dicey studied her map while her tongue made valleys in the ice cream and then smoothed them out. The cone was crunchy and sweet. So yeah, I really remembered that passage, but my memory of it was like a compound of my overall sense of the book, which is, Mm. I guess, the image of these really starving, grubby, tired kids eating really rich, creamy ice cream in a baking hot car park. That was like the image that encapsulated the whole book for me. And just to finish off, I think that's actually what most reading experiences and maybe most memories are like. We store Mm. away a concentrated package of the most memorable aspects and we chuck away all the bits that don't feel so important or vivid. And then we like reread it in our mind's eye a bit like the horrendous blinks like <laughs> we blink it but yeah I, I I didn't read the book again <laughs> I'm sorry that's fine you have nothing to apologize for I just use it as an opportunity to be really self-involved so that was fun I mean you say that I would argue why is it your responsibility to read 13 million books some of which are genuinely uh, microwave dinners for one that is a book that exists you don't want to read that sounds quite useful I mean I would quite like to know how to <laughs> create delicious no, microwave dinners for it's one the most depressing book I've ever heard <laughs> maybe with anthropological interest though no I mean of course like I it's ridiculous to feel that you have to read all the books that ever existed and it's not it's not humanely possible but I think it's more a sense of there is so much that there's no time to go back. You know, you have to keep pushing mm. forward. It's no way to live. I agree. <laughs> mm. I kind of agree with you. And I've definitely felt that feeling before, particularly from things that I was supposed to read at uni and never got around to reading. But I God, just yeah. am less and less bothered, though, now. Now I think actually yeah. a lot of books are hyped and they're just crap. And basically the books that I've enjoyed recently have just been stuff on my shelf that I've been so bored in lockdown, picked up, and they've been surprisingly good. You know, everyone stores books. I'm really interested in the story about your dad accumulating books. Did he read them all? Um, That's an interesting question because that would be a bit of a like debate between my mum and dad. My mum would be mm. like you're never going to read all of these books, get rid of them. And my dad would be like, I will. (laughs) And I I don't know, like he is a voracious reader, but he's also a journalist. So he's able to read at a phenomenal speed. So yeah, maybe there's something of that going on as well. I have always felt like I'm a really slow reader as well. And that has frustrated me. But I think as I've got older, I've come to accept it more that it's maybe fine to read things slowly. Yeah, I think that links in with what you were saying about the stomach of the mind. Yeah, but it's a bit different. Like, I'm not meticulously copying out and illuminating manuscripts. It's more like my (laughs) phone phone is next to me and I pick it up and check it after every third sentence. Like, that's that's probably, if I'm honest, the reason why it takes me so long (laughs) to read books. 
but I don't think it'd be one extreme or the other like that's fine that's just what modern life is like I yeah think, I'm sure everyone is that now unless you're in a car and you're listening to an audiobook and you genuinely can't do anything else yeah I mean there's no reason why reading should feel like a competition right it shouldn't mm. it should feel like something that you do for pleasure and I do think that recently I've tried to let go a bit of this idea that I have to keep reading as much as possible so that I can keep up in some way. Although I do also feel like it is really important to be part of a conversation when you're reading. That's why I feel like things like a book club are great because you're not just a lone reader. You're mm. having a conversation with other people about what you're reading. So I studied English with you at uni, as you know and we mainly read books by dead people and since then I've been much more drawn to reading books by alive people and books that have just come out maybe because I feel that in some way then I can jump ahead in the race to read everything that's ever been written (laughs) but I think I think more I think more because reading contemporary fiction makes you feel part of a conversation and a discourse so Mm. that's nice but it can very easily slip into a competitiveness that's probably not healthy or fun. Yeah, I think with like kind of awards and trying to read all the awards shortlists and all of that stuff, it can be quite unhealthy. But equally, I'm very, very bad at reading modern stuff. I don't feel like I should read stuff for the sake of I was supposed to read it and it was on my reading list, but the stuff I feel like I missed out on because I had three years and that's not enough time to read, you know, books that are like often at least 600 pages long but I am very bad at reading modern stuff yeah why do you think that is I think it's like almost the opposite of what your dad does in that I realized I think maybe during university or a bit before that I was just buying books because they're on offer and I had money for the first time but then I'd never read them I'd get like a Waterstones three for two deal and I'd want the one book and then I wouldn't read the other two and then I I kind of was like well there's no point having these things it doesn't interest me but I don't I don't know why I don't feel the pressure I just I just think some some books just look a bit crap yeah sure but there are also lots of old books which are revered which I think are crap yeah no I'm not I'm not saying that at all I just think I'm just not really in I don't know that's maybe that's not true I read Girl Woman Other which is the like headline big new book from last year and that was fantastic Um, And I have read some things because of book clubs, but often I need someone to direct me towards it. Yeah, it can feel quite overwhelming. Yeah. Like, basically, I think what's happening there, Shirley, is that you want the warm, fuzzy security of the patriarchy giving you a canon and telling you you what's important to read. And that's very difficult with stuff that's just come out because hasn't stood the test of time. I'm being facetious. I know, no, yeah. I agree. I don't think that I necessarily need to have a stamp of approval from an authority figure, but if someone else I know likes it, then I know I'm not going to waste my time reading this book. Oh yeah, like friends' recommendations are so mm. important. Or like mm. the recommendation of a trusted critic. I sometimes feel reading contemporary fiction is scarier and more fraught. A, because the subject matter is closer to my actual real life and b because I write creatively for fun and it's often like a reminder of where my own writing falls short like I recently read Burnt Sugar by Avni Doshi and it felt like she was saying all of the things that I've recently been wanting to say in my writing about 
women and bodies and pregnancy as well and fertility. And she was saying all of it in a way that was so beautiful and powerful. And I was like, oh, well, why do I even bother then? This is so much better and it already exists, which is the similar thing to what I was talking about before, of like feeling like there's just like this soup of words that already exists in the universe. And if you put more into it, it's like you're creating a bigger problem. You're creating more boxes, dusty boxes on the landing that are going to have to be got rid of somehow. I mean, yeah. I I understand the feeling again, but I also don't think that it's your responsibility. It's someone else's house. If your book is in someone else's house and it's on their shelf gathering dust, that's not your fault. There's lots of pictures in the world now. We're saturated with images, but it wouldn't stop you taking a picture if you had something that you wanted to like keep for a memory or whatever. I have it with pictures really? too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't go back and look at all the photos on my phone or on Google, you know, her uploads them all onto Google Photos. I find that horrendous. I'm like, there's so many. It's like this excessive, I don't know, all of this debris from my life. It's wonderful as well, but it's also terrifying to me. That's crazy. I love going back through the pictures because I'm like, oh, Howard looks sexy here. Oh, another nice <laughs> picture of Howard. We've, been, we've had a nice holiday here. <laughs> it was sunny T-M-I. <laughs> wow. I mean, I wasn't talking about those kind of photos. No, neither am I. I'm just talking about how it's sitting on a rock. <laughs> I just have very a low rock. expectations. <laughs> I bet he is. <laughs> I'm just conscious of time, but before I want to swap sure over. Sure you are. Um, um, okay. <laughs> no, I wanted to ask about Blinkist. I think I heard about this company when I was, um, I believed I was into startups about five years ago. And I thought, oh, wow, super smart, really clever. But it definitely is branded towards the sort of people who think they're really smart and re- busy and clever. They are really busy and smart and clever, but that isn't the only way to be busy and smart and clever. Yeah, okay, fair And it's definitely not the best way to read books. I think I was being a bit facetious in the way I talked about Blinkist because what it actually is and what my friend explained when I gave her that spiel when she started working there (laughs) is that it's not about condensing fiction or books that are meant to be digested slowly. It's more about digesting self-help books, books about business, Non-fiction, basically. Non-fiction mm. book that's more about the content than it is about the writing, if that makes sense. Well, I was thinking about this and I think what I've realised about, I've read a lot of self-help slash non-fiction stuff about babies this year and parenting and things like that. And the trend I've noticed in non-fiction books is that they could mostly be an article, like a long read, and they are bulked out into a book. I think a lot of them originate from articles and then they're like, oh, let's make this into a book. This will sell. And then the author is faced with a demand for X number of words and has to essentially pad it out. It's obviously not always the case, but I definitely also feel like that as well. And I think Mm. partly because my parents are journalists, they always taught me that good writing was clear and concise and that Mm. you should kind of try and only use words that are necessary rather than intentionally try and puff it out and I still really believe in that I think that good writing should be streamlined but I really think that that's the case with non-fiction especially like it should be to the point yeah I actually find that really frustrating 
what Blinkist are doing is taking what was an article and has been made into a book back into an article again. Yeah. Bizarre. <laughs> like, like the amount the of world we live in. Money on. So stupid. Oh my God. Okay. Anyway, is it your turn now? Yeah, I thought I'd talk on a similar theme this episode about books that I enjoyed when I was a teenager. But instead of talking about something worthwhile or groundbreaking or useful to humanity, I would like to talk about a book that tops the Goodreads chart for young adult trash fiction. Yes, it's Twilight, because I was young adult trash. Um, The Twilight Saga (laughs) is a series that people absolutely love to hate. It doesn't just top the trash charts, but also every single listicle I could find, like books you love but other people hate or bestsellers that we love to hate. Twilight is always number one. Maybe people hate success, but people do go on about how the writing is terrible, that it has little literary value. Although, according to Wikipedia, Mayer was influenced by the work of Jane Austen and William Shakespeare, who were both pretty hyped in their time. Uh, Wait, how? How? I will come on to it later, but Twilight is, the plot is based on Pride and Prejudice. Oh my God. And I feel like the author has definitely been cancelled a few times for being Mormon, I think. If you asked me when I went to university if I liked these books, I would categorically have denied it. Actually, I like serious fiction like Emily Bronte and Emily Bronte. Because in all honesty, (laughs) the only classic I'd read at that point was Wuthering Heights. And even this, I'd forced my sister to listen to as I read it aloud because I just didn't think I could get through it on my own. However, at age 16, if you'd asked me about Twilight, I would have told you about my undying love for these books well I mean undying until I was 18 then suddenly very much dead much like a vampire (laughs) so I know that I was into Twilight age 16 partly because I just remember the infatuation in spite of serious time spent suppressing it and but also because I've recently found a diary from that time and I say diary but the title it was given was memoirs of 16 by Shirley Hulse oh god memoirs So I grew up in a small town in Wiltshire where almost exactly nothing happened. Of course, people would be interested in reading about my rich and varied life experience. All 16 long years of it. Ironically, the memoir starts by looking forward to the following year when I would be allowed to drive. So less a memoir at this early point than a work of speculative fiction. So it starts Tuesday, 16th of December, six days after I'd turned 16 and the day after I'd started my great work, Memoirs of 16. I opened with, I really needed to read Twilight today, but I left it at school. Followed by some unrelated complaints about a wayward DT project. Such was my passion for this book that I really needed to read it. And the passion only gets stronger and more embarrassing as the memoir continues. The following day, I'd clearly salvaged Twilight from school and have a simple list of my activities for the day. One, my friend told me acting is a crap career choice. Two, Read Twilight for an age. Three. (laughs) Three. Really need to lose weight. To be honest, I'm not surprised that I enjoyed the escapism of pretending to be in love with a vampire when points one and three from perspective and actual life were pretty bleak. Obviously, though, trauma is a key part of a memoir. This is backed up by the subsequent entry on Thursday the 18th of December. I can remember now... Why I stopped reading books. Today will be miserable. And there's prefect duty. 
I've also added an X to the end to show that I'm basically Gossip Girl. XOXO. <laughs> I, I love the idea that prior to Twilight, I'd forsworn all books purely because finishing them had made me so unhappy. I go on to explain later that day, my major issues with today was my 2am bedtime and the story that I was no longer inside yet reminisced about. Oh my God, this is, it's like your relationship with the book is incredibly sexual there. Yeah, I think I just was using long words because I just discovered them. It's like you're having a breakup with the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I fancied at least the main character, if yeah. not all of the characters. Yeah. Of course, Prefect GT was going to be crap if I'd gone to bed late. Tut tut, says grown up, marginally more responsible Shirley, who also uh, notably no longer has to do prefect duty, which is a universally cold and thankless task, which meant you could wear a slightly different tie. And also, if you had no sense of self-preservation, an extra pin badge. But also, I envy her a little being caught up in a story that completely overwhelms you. It's really precious. And it happens less and less to me now in that kind of completely encompassing way. And who can blame her for wanting to be in rainy forks with a sparkly vampire instead of in rainy Chippenham hounding year sevens out of maths block? <laughs> I go on. Unequivocally. Uh, apparently it's unequivocally, but I didn't know that at the time or until I wrote this on <laughs> <laughs> Unequivocally. There is only one word for today. Pathetic. The day was pathetic. The people, pathetic. Even the weather was pathetic. As if pathetic fallacy wasn't only a writing skill. Anyway, I matched. <laughs> <sighs> English GCSE meant a lot to me. Um, I went on to invent my own metaphor. I felt like the fuse being pushed too far. What's that even mean? Unfortunately, it's extremely easy to take the piss out of my 16-year-old self, just like it's very easy to take the piss out of Twilight. After I finished reading the series, I got very into YouTube, and at the time there was a man, and somehow, it often is a man, who would read out the books in his videos in order to laugh at them. Now, I don't know whether there's much literature, to be honest, that would stand up to this level of scrutiny. Certainly at 16 or so, it was easy to feel that my instincts had been mistaken, and because I like this trashy book, I too was trashy. But the only reason why there's so much snobbery about this book is because it is and was successful. It's a compelling story. It is basically Pride and Prejudice with vampires. And it's particularly compelling if you're a young adult facing racing emotions and feeling distance from your peers, just like every single teenager. If it hadn't been successful because people enjoyed the story, no one would have bothered telling young people they were wrong for enjoying it, or worse, they were in danger for enjoying it. Because... As all old people know, young people have statistically smaller brains than old people and therefore would be clearly misled by these powerful books and actually believe they were vampires. <laughs> I don't think Twilight is the best book I've ever read now, but I definitely did when I was 16. And that is why I am now a professional vampire. Just kidding. <laughs> Thank you very much. I love that. That's really so fascinating to hear your journals from that age <laughs> god um, they're, they're so pretentious and well, i don't think they get less pretentious as i grow up i still think i'm pretentious i mean i was about to say they sound a lot like my journals now <laughs> i'm 29 years old and the bit where you write that everything is pathetic like that's that's definitely me on a bad journaling day <laughs> 
Yeah. Which is another reason why I also don't read back my journals, by the way. <laughs> I mean, but what if you need to write a comedy set? <laughs> then definitely. They would be, my, mine would be also a, a gold mine. I think that there is something very revealing about writing a diary and you'd write stuff in there. I mean, even if I thought, I, I called it a memoir. I don't think anyone was going to read this. I wasn't going to publish it. I think I meant memoir in the sense that memories, my memories of being 16, because I was like, oh yes, when I'm 28, I will really value this. But it's interesting also because that also you recording the memory that you want to record and the reason that they sound pretentious to you is because you're using the diary or journal or memoir or whatever you want to call it as a way of creating that identity which you're also anticipating looking back on retrospectively it's like you're using the journal as a tool for working out who you are Mm. it's very interesting because I think there's lots of stuff that I really wanted age 16 that I can see in the journal that I really wanted but I was too scared to kind of explicitly say so there's Mm -hmm. lots of stuff about wanting to act wanting to sing and it's all undermined by something else like my friend said it wasn't very good and she wants me to take biology or I should be so lucky like just scathing self-criticism just to kind of ward off I guess perceived failure in the future which just seems so sad yeah that's sad that's like you're using the journal to contain all of your hopes and dreams and desires and almost berate yourself for them Mm, yeah at age 16 I felt like I was trying to be realistic about things it's really interesting because I kept a similar journal and we always encourage girls who do be her lead to keep journals but I think the best way to journal which is the way that I journal (laughs) um, obviously not the best way for everyone but the best way for me is to not think about what I'm writing and it takes a while to get to that point where you're not being really Mm. self-conscious and doing it with your older self in your mind reading it back but I find that if I think about reading it back or anyone else reading it then it ceases to be useful because a journal for me is useful as a space where I can just get everything out you know rather than a space for containing and restricting what I want and what I feel it's more like a space where I can just pour it all in 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 there and it's safe and it's not going to hurt anyone and it's able to mill around and pool and work out what it is Hmm. and I find just the process of writing a journal particularly now I mean I find it hard to access the headspace when I was 16 but now I feel like oh that thought is out of my brain it's somewhere else now especially stuff like oh my god my journal for the past at least four months is mostly moaning about pregnancy but that's useful because it means I moan less out loud that's a lie I moan exactly the same amount out loud. but I feel like I've preserved the moaning for posterity yeah I think that's that is a really useful thing to do I also remember there's a really good book called how to do nothing by Jenny O'Dell and she writes a lot about journaling and is a voracious journaler and she talked about how when you're writing down your thoughts and feelings then you're forcing yourself to slow them down as well Mm. and it's a little bit like those monks actually 
because you're yeah. having to look at them in a different way by putting them on the paper you're you're forced to reflect on them and see them differently and see them take shape and maybe look at them from a few different angles yeah I think I've heard a similar idea about writing jokes if you handwrite a joke Mm-hmm. part of the process of writing it down often leaves your brain freer for thinking of punchlines or where it's going to go and things like that just like sometimes it's easier walking or running or swimming to think of ideas or lines that you might want to use uh, regardless of what kind of writing it as jokes or you know creative writing in some other context yeah it frees up your brain this also really reminds me of I think my favorite book that I read last year was a really short book, almost a pamphlet called Ongoingness. Mm. And it's by an author called Sarah Manguso. And it's basically, it's about her obsession with keeping a diary and how it started, I think, in her late teens, early 20s, when she felt like her life was really exciting and lots of things were happening. And she suddenly felt like she had to record all of it. And then Mm. since then, she just, can't go a day without recording her experiences on a file on her computer and the whole thing is almost about the process of letting go of her need to to keep a diary which becomes really Mm. constricting because she starts to a bit like my feeling of there being too many books in the world it becomes overwhelming because she she's can't she doesn't have enough time to record all of the time and recording Mm. the time in her journal is a way of her holding on to it it's like basically about coming to terms with mortality and relevant to you the thing that helps her let go of it is having a baby oh interesting because then her experience of time is completely changed Hmm. because she becomes like she's tired all the time for one thing sorry but also she's she's shaping her time around the baby and the baby's experience of time and time sort of becomes less structured and rigid and more Mm. kind of organic and she's just experiencing it rather than needing to record it all the time that's really interesting that we have that kind of sense of losing everything like we lose so many things like I can't remember what I was doing this time last week but I can't possibly record everything but that's really interesting I definitely think babies or children have a different concept of time And that's why I hated going into school the day after I'd stayed up really late to do prefect duty when, you know, in my head and to some extent in my real life, I definitely felt really strongly about Twilight and lots of books when I was when I was a teenager. It just just doesn't like real life takes ages, you know, because it's so much longer for you when you're an adult, you have autonomy and, you know, you're kind of on top of time a bit more. Maybe that's maybe not true, but you feel like it's you have a bit more say whereas when you're younger you just time is kind of so movable it doesn't matter if you do something or you don't do something yeah it's like more like you're moving through it and it's not something that is something to be conquered yeah apart from eventually you'll be a grown-up and that's like the thing for the whole of your childhood well I felt like it was but was it something that you were looking forward to or something you were dreading I was desperately looking forward to it. I found I hated my school. I had a very difficult time early on and never quite recovered from it. And my my mom didn't have a car at the time and we didn't really have people over our house. And it was just, it was just hard to have friends 
I didn't feel like I fit in, but I'm sure everyone felt like that. I was thinking that during your um your bit actually, because when you were talking about your experience of reading being so full of life and so vivid and colourful compared to mm. your daily life, which you described as pathetic, and how you didn't really have it reading experiences like that as an adult, I was thinking maybe that's because you're more living your actual life now. Mm. You're more in it. I definitely feel so. I feel that way. Apart from last year, actually, I had an experience where I was like completely into a book and that whole, what you were talking about, actually, where the experience of reading it and the moment of reading it is like really captivating. And I had that last year reading Wild Swans, but it was because... <laughs> It was lockdown and there's nothing else to do. And so a book suddenly becomes more lifelike in comparison. Yeah, reading is escapism. And we have so much escapism now that maybe books are not always a priority in that way or it's not the first thing that we go to. Like I'm watching so much more TV than I've ever watched in my life. Mm. Not that that's a bad thing. I don't want to be snob. <laughs> I mean, I've just talked about Twilight and not the person to be snobby about anything now. Did you ever read Twilight? I'm just... Sorry, I'm just thinking about that because it's like there's this, I feel like the distinction between your real life and the experience of reading or watching films or TV, it's hard to draw a line between them. Maybe it's easier during lockdown, but they're both real life. Like, I feel like your experience of reading Twilight as a teenager was, if anything, more real to you than your prefect duty. And Mm. you probably remember it more vividly. And so in some ways it it was your life. It was your experience. It was real. Mm. In answer to your question, did I read Twilight growing up? No, I was really snobby at the time that everyone was reading Twilight and I refused to read it because I thought I was too clever. (laughs) (laughs) It was that thing of like, oh, I need to read grown-up books. I need to read highbrow literature. I need to get on that ladder. I remember going to watch Twilight in the cinema for someone's birthday and Mm. feeling really turned on by it, (laughs) but not really knowing or understanding what was going on in my mind or in my body and really enjoying it, but also coming out of the cinema being like, oh, that was so crap. Oh my God. Mm. (laughs) Like really dismissing it. But then later Googling, what's the name of the guy? Um, Robert Patterson. Yeah, like Googling pictures of him. So the film was crap in comparison to the books. If you felt turned on by the film, (laughs) the books. It's like sexy vampire uh, Pride and Prejudice. I also remember my first boyfriend was really into something like Vampire Diaries or, or True Blood. It was called True Blood. He would have been an absolute snob about Twilight. But True Blood is basically the same thing, but with more actual sex, because I guess it wasn't written by a Mormon. <laughs> and I remember one time he spent ages and ages at my house that he was visiting, trying to set up his computer to connect to the TV. My dad helped him out and all of this stuff. And he wanted to watch True Blood. And my dad just sat down beside him to watch it with him, because like TV is quite a social experience, or it, or it was at my dad's house. And I hightailed it off elsewhere in the house because I was not going to sit there with my then boyfriend and my dad watching this like sexy vampire thing so like an hour later yeah he came up to me and was like 
I didn't know your dad was going to stay. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> that was a fun experience for you. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I did used to watch Buffy a lot. Mm. It's very similar. Well, I mean, I mean, it's, I think it's different in ways that, um, sorry, Shirley, I think Buffy is a lot better. I mean, I still haven't read Twilight. So this podcast, like there's a theme of me talking about things without having actually <laughs> read them properly. You're right. In terms of, in terms of female heroines and, mm. and things like that, Bella is not the, she's not someone to necessarily look up to, but she the whole like, thing is that she's weak, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah, but sometimes when you're like a teenager and sometimes when you're an adult, you just want someone else to take care of you for a bit. Yeah. And like make you feel special. And I don't think that's sure. a bad thing. No, and I think it's it's not helpful to dismiss the reasons why so many young people love that story. Like it's much mm. more helpful to be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. What would you like about that feeling of being weak? Or what do you like about that feeling of a strong sexy vampire taking control like yeah I don't think it's helpful to be like you shouldn't want to be like Bella you should want to be strong you should want to do high kicks (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) but I think I think the the nice thing is that you can experience both of those things you can read both of those things and you can be both of those things just like in your story um was it Dicey who was like a tomboy sometimes and she was a goody two-shoes sometimes and Mm. both of those aspects of her character were important like I'm not saying that anyone's like 100% Bella Swan or anyone's 100% Buffy like we all have our moments where we're we're playing different characters. Sure and it's helpful to get that stuff out of your system and be honest about it too a bit like with the journaling. Absolutely. So Thank you so much for joining us today, Edith. Um, where can people find out more about you or Be Her Lead? You can go to our website, which is www.beherlead.com or you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. But yeah, we, we as I said before, we have a conference coming up on the 20th of March, which is aimed at teachers and educators, but is basically open to anyone who's interested in how gender intersects with, with education. So yeah, hope to see some of you there. I would definitely recommend it. I'm also running a workshop, which is very exciting. And if you want to find the Alternative Book Club, we are at Alt Book Club on Facebook. Uh, you can also find us now on our new social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter. I think we're at Alt Book Club on Instagram and then at the Alt Book Club on Twitter because someone in 2010 also had an Alternative Book Club. Thank you very much, Edith, for joining us. Thank you very much to you for listening and goodbye.